session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, studio number 3104410555. Again, I want to announce the book of the week, which I announced Monday night. It is How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. I'll post a picture of that uh, today on my social media. I'm about 100 pages in, and it is a really, really interesting book looking at emotions and how much of what we thought we knew about emotions or even the classical views of emotions and how they take place or are created or made in the brain are not really true. Uh, So it's been very interesting to read this, fascinating, and I'm looking forward to finishing the book. And I'll talk about the book on next Wednesday's Wednesday's show because Monday is Labor Day and I won't be doing a live show, so I'll talk about that book on next Wednesday. I wanted to start the show off today talking about a topic um, I talk about a lot, vulnerability, because of experiences I have had recently and just seeing the power of vulnerability, and that's actually a title of a book by Brené Brown, which maybe I will make a book of the week one of these weeks. Um, but the power of vulnerability and how much it can serve to make us closer to individuals or make us close to one another. So when we think of what we try to do when we meet people, we try to put our best foot forward, so to speak, to look our best and to present ourselves in the best way, as strong, as not really having weaknesses or insecurities, as looking our best, all the best ways that we can, which makes sense. And we think that the way to make people like us or what makes us likable is this good part of us, our good side. If we show them we're good, if we show them we're strong, if we don't show weakness, that's what's going to make us look good. Um, And to a certain extent, it makes some sense. You're probably not going to show up on a first date looking your worst and telling the person the worst things you've ever done in your life. But however, the reason why I mention this is that although we think what makes people like us is our good side, what really creates closeness is when we become vulnerable and show some of those weaknesses or insecurities that we have. Really, that's the only way we create genuine closeness or a deep connection with another person. If you think about anyone who you consider very close to you, uh, people, especially friendships or people you've met in your adult life, almost always it's going to be someone whom you've been vulnerable with and they've been vulnerable with you. In some ways, it's a measure of how close we feel to someone else's. When we expose ourselves or feel exposed, then we become vulnerable and show our weaknesses or our deepest insecurities or feelings to someone else. Not when we show our most beautiful, wonderful, 
side that's just polished and everything looks good. In the professional setting, this is something I, of course, get to experience regularly because therapy is a place where vulnerability is, in essence, the key or one of the keys to getting to what you're trying to do, which is healing your pain. You have to go to that pain. You have to show that to the therapist. And, and that's why it does take courage to enter therapy and then to really get into what you're experiencing. Many people don't want to do this. They start therapy, they go a few times, and when they realize they have to start getting into the more, uh, let's call it, uh, darker sides of themselves, things they maybe are ashamed of, things they don't feel good about, things they think they have to hide from other people, sometimes they terminate treatment, they stop coming in. And maybe they'll say something like, oh, you know, I realized I could handle things on my own, or, you know, just those couple sessions already helped and I don't think I need to come back anymore. And maybe they really think this, but oftentimes consciously or unconsciously, it's that they're afraid to get into that vulnerable state, to share that with someone, because maybe they've never felt safe to share it with anyone. And so here they are asked to be vulnerable. And once they get close to that edge, they say, oh, this is too scary. This doesn't feel right. And they stop and they don't come in anymore, unfortunately. Of course, many people get to that edge and take that leap and become vulnerable and show that to the therapist. And what I've experienced when this happens, um, and sometimes even becomes something that the client will talk about with me, is that you almost always will feel closer to the individual after they've been vulnerable with you. And I just like to be tentative, because really it's always, but I wanted to say almost always, because to leave that space, that maybe there's an instance where it doesn't happen. But in my experience is that when someone shows me their pain, their weaknesses that they feel are weaknesses. Sometimes it's not even the case. Things they think they need to be ashamed of or feel bad about. Um, and sometimes they'll even think, you must think less of me now, or you must not like me as much, or you now you know I'm not that person I was showing you before. I'm this person. And I try to let them know that actually now I see you even better than I did before. I feel closer to you. Um, I feel like I know you better and the connection with you is much stronger. Actually, sometimes people come into therapy and you can feel that they are just trying to show you a good side. And they talk about things, they might even talk about problems, but they put them in a very nice package so it doesn't look too bad. And the person might think they're looking very good in my eyes, but usually actually what's happening is I don't feel connected to that person at all. There isn't a sense of connection when someone is just telling you, oh, things are good. And oh yeah, you know, a little bit of stress at work, but I'm okay. You're never going to connect with someone when they talk in that way. But once they actually show them to me, they actually are more beautiful than they were when they were trying to be what they thought looked better. So really, in some ways, we look our best when we look our worst or when we're at our worst, which I know sounds like a paradox, but there's a lot of truth in that. When you actually show someone who you are, then there can be some sense of connection. In some ways, it's like we try to have this smooth, polished image, right? But you can't create a lot of heat with two things that are very smooth. There has to be something to create the friction. There has to be something that the rough edges have to rub up against each other to create some kind of friction and heat. And our human relationships are like that. If we don't have anything to connect to with each other, to hook each other with, or to connect on, we stay very disconnected. We can It can feel nice and easy and very clean, but it's not gonna feel very good 
or very deep or connected, which is what we're looking for. And of course, I'm talking about the therapy relationship, but in our relationships in general, this also holds true. And more specifically, we can say in our romantic relationships, this is an area where vulnerability is necessary to really create closeness. Of course, we can talk about how men tend to have a harder time with vulnerability, which is definitely true. And it's not just to blame men for this. It's a lot about the societal pressures we put on men not to be vulnerable, that to show weakness is not masculine or to cry makes you not a man. Um, or you always have to be strong and always show that you're okay. And it's better to push your feelings down or to drink your feelings away than to show them or share them with someone else. But unfortunately, when this happens, we all pay the cost. The man who's going through this, of course, suffers by having to hold in their feelings, having to feel ashamed of this very natural part of themselves. We all have uh, the whole range of feelings and thoughts and even about ourselves. We might not feel good at a time, but they push this all down or try to numb it or whatever they try to do to cope with that in generally unhealthy ways. And then also they tend to take it out on people around them in negative ways. If you have feelings of pain or sadness that you're experiencing, but you don't share them, they almost always are going to come out in a negative way towards yourself or those around you. And also relationships don't get as close as they can get because one partner, or if it's both, but let's say in the stereotypical example, the man is not being vulnerable. It doesn't allow for the closeness that's needed to create that deep connection in the relationship. So everyone pays the price when we don't have that. But of course, this doesn't mean that it's easy for women to be vulnerable. Maybe there's slightly less restrictions or um, gender norms about that for women, but it doesn't mean it's easy to show someone your darker side, the part you don't feel good about. And that's why it does take some courage. And of course, as I said, when you go on a first date, you don't need to start telling the person your deepest, darkest secrets and insecurities. That actually wouldn't make sense. We don't need to be vulnerable or equally vulnerable with everyone. That isn't even appropriate, wouldn't be right, and it isn't the best way to do things. Some people are almost on that extreme where they're too open about things with people they don't know well enough to have that connection and safety with and they can get themselves in trouble in that way. But for most of us, it's harder to become vulnerable than to be too vulnerable. So we have to find someone we feel comfortable with. We have to find someone that makes us feel safe. Even in the course of therapy, people might become vulnerable different times. They need to feel a connection and comfort and safety with the therapist to then feel like, okay, I can now show you more or be more open with you. But in our relationships, this is also true. We be, tend to go a little bit deeper the more we get to know each other. That makes sense. On the first date, you might talk about yourself in a general way, where you grew up, things uh, that happened, share some funny stories and anecdotes and keep it pleasant. But hopefully, if the relationship does develop, slowly you get deeper and deeper. And I encourage people to remember that the only way you're going to get very close to someone is to show them that, that to show them those vulnerable pieces of yourself that you think make you unlovable, that make you think no one would like, but actually those are the things that are going to make someone fall even more in love with you or feel more connected to you. That's kind of another one of the paradoxes that exists when it comes to this. We think that if we show this person this dark part of myself, the insecurities, the weaknesses, they're going to run away. Who would want that? Um, how could someone love this part of me? Because for our whole lives, we felt that this was our unlovable part. Maybe we got that message as a kid 
that don't show these types of feelings or else you won't get love or you'll make mommy or daddy upset. Or we felt that we were an embarrassment to our parents because of something we did or something about us. So we thought we had to hide that from everyone because this is my unlovable piece. But as it turns out, if you then show that to your partner, if they genuinely care for you and love you, they're going to love you even more. They're going to feel even closer to you. And actually that part that you're showing is going to make them not love you less or not run away from you or not stop being with you, but will lead them to feel even closer and actually love you even more. So although it's a risk, we have to remember that it's a risk that is worth taking with the right person. And it's the only way we can actually create the relationship that we want. So the power of vulnerability is incredible. If you've ever cried to someone or had them cry to you, or maybe you both were crying at the same time to each other, you'll feel that closeness afterwards that is really incredible. That is something that you can't create any other way. That you can't create when you just keep things feeling nice and good and everything's okay and no one shows anything to one another. You have to have sometimes those cries where you are not looking your best, you might feel, and there's snot coming out of your nose and you're just breaking down, but the person gets to see you in your most raw state. And that actually creates the closeness. Again, another one, another one of those paradoxes. We might think we look our ugliest when we're doing that ugly cry, but someone that truly loves us and wants to be there for us and with us is going to feel even closer with us. We'll look more beautiful to them than we ever have when they see us in that moment because they'll see what's really truly human about us. We all have weaknesses. We all have insecurities. We all have pain. And unfortunately, we tend to think we have to hide it from one another uh, in this game, I like to call, you don't show me yours, I won't show you mine. We'll just keep our pain inside. We'll keep those weaknesses away and keep everything warm and fuzzy and easy. But really, when we share that pain with one another, we start to see that that's what makes us human is that we all have that pain. We don't need to hide it from ourselves. We don't need to hide it from one another. And by sharing it with each other, not only do we heal some of that pain, but we also make our relationships closer. So again, I wanted to just start today's show talking about the power of vulnerability. That it takes courage, it's not easy, but when you have the right partner and in the right context, that's one of the most beautiful things we can do is to show that to someone else and that's what makes our relationships closer, more meaningful, and actually longer lasting. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back. In the previous segment, I was talking about the power of vulnerability, and I touched a little bit about uh, men and how it tends to be more difficult for men to be vulnerable um, because of societal pressures. And I was talking to Rahman during the studio. He's here making sure I sound okay on the air and taking care of everything else technical uh, while I get to do the show. And he was saying how he does see that women sometimes have a hard time accepting men's vulnerability or even worse than that can see it as unattractive or not masculine and it can affect how they feel about the person um, to see them as a potential dating partner if they're dating them maybe it'll be a turnoff for them 
And he's not the only person to think this way or to say this, and there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And I think that's worth talking about in more detail because I think this is a, a big problem. So as I mentioned in the previous segment, it's very easy to say, well, men aren't vulnerable enough. Come on, men, be more vulnerable. It's your fault that you're not expressing yourself or showing your feelings to women in your, or in general or opening up to people. But I don't think that's fair to just blame them. This is a societal issue. These norms go both ways, not just men promote them and not just women promote them. Definitely both people play a part. So it's very simple to just blame the men and say, do this, just like with some other issues, it's easy to say, to blame women and say, well, it's your fault, this is happening or that's happening, just change your behavior because you have to look at the bigger cultural context. And unfortunately, for a man to cry, it definitely in today's day and age is seen as a sign of weakness and not being masculine. We praise men who can keep it together and not cry or hold it together. That's kind of a, seen as a positive. And if some man cries, it's very easy to laugh at them and ridicule them. Um, I even think a lot of times people who try to be open-minded about gender issues will still make fun of men when they cry. So they say, oh, you know, I'm about feminism and equality and women can do anything, men can do anything. We shouldn't be looking at it that way. But if a man cries, it's like funny to them or they want to poke fun at them or make them look, you know, unmasculine or not masculine or say, call them different things that we call men that are not masculine. And we see it as somehow okay. Like cry shaming, if we want to call it that, is somehow still okay to make fun of someone who is crying. And I think this actually is a big problem. And it always wasn't the case. Men of great power and stature would actually show pride in crying about something because it showed how much they cared about something. For example, I think it's and Alexander wept because there were no more lands to conquer. But it wasn't somehow he was being weak. It was showing a strength, of course, uh, maybe it's not the best example because it's talking about him trying to conquer people. But throughout history, we've seen that men showed that they cared about something enough to cry about it. It actually wasn't a bad thing. And that's actually how I feel about crying. And I've talked about it before. Crying, it, to me, is not a sign of weakness. The majority of time, crying is a sign that you had the strength to allow yourself to care enough about something. That's a good thing. If you end a marriage after 15 years and you pride yourself that you didn't cry at all about the marriage ending, I would really be concerned because that tells me either A, you're completely disconnected from the feelings of sadness and grief that you naturally should be having, or B, you never even allowed yourself to get close to your partner over that 15-year relationship so you're not feeling much. Either way, it's not a good thing. It's not a sign of strength to me. That's more of a sign of weakness. So if I see two people after a breakup, one of them is crying and one of them is not crying, I don't think the not crying one is necessarily a stronger person. I think at least the person crying is expressing their feelings in touch with their feelings and going through the grieving process, which is natural anytime we go through a loss like a breakup. But coming back to men and how it's easy to make fun of men for crying, this is something we all have to change. And we all have to accept that it's our responsibility to not put people down, anyone for crying, but especially not men. Another comment I do want to make is this idea that women are quote-unquote more emotional than men. And a few of the books I've read recently for the show, um, I think it was in Mindwise and actually even in How Emotions Are Made, I saw Lisa Feldman Barrett talking and she was saying that this idea that women are more emotional than men, there's not 
a scientific backing for that. We like to say that, and we you know we often say that a lot. And even it occurs that when women are trying to become in positions of power, we talk about, well, yeah, you know, but if let's say Hillary Clinton becomes president, is she going to be too emotional and make emotional decisions? And actually, as most people ask them that, or Supreme Court justices when they are being um, questioned or in their hearings to see if they can you know be approved to be on the Supreme Court, the females often get questions about that. Will they, by their nature of being a woman, be able to stay rational, which is totally bogus and and really crazy, but still we're being we're asking those questions because these assumptions seem to be so true. Even when I say that, I'm sure people are like, oh, come on, you're saying women aren't more emotional than men, but you're just saying that. No, I think the science shows that, and to me it makes sense because we do make some emotions more okay for men than for women. I think it's actually funny because when we say someone got emotional, almost always we mean they started crying, right? So we say, oh, I was, I was watching this movie and I got emotional. It means I started, I got to tears or this person got emotional. And we don't tend to think of anger as emotional, even though if we want to look at irrationality, oftentimes people in anger are doing the most destructive things. The most irrational things are usually done in anger, if we're going to look at it that way. So to think of it as more rational to be angry than sad to me is kind of funny, but to also say that men are not emotional when we actually can praise them for being angry to me is also not understanding what emotion is. It's all of those things. Um, and this book, How Emotions Are Made, really gets in the depth of how emotions come about in our brains and how we interpret them and see them a certain way. But nonetheless, this idea that men are not emotional, it's not true. So we have to put that to bed and we have to accept that a man is experiencing emotions just as a woman does. And the idea that a man should hide his feelings is not a good one. It's hurting everyone, as I mentioned before. When a man has to hide his feelings, in my opinion, and how I see things develop, it makes them more likely to go th towards things like violence and drugs and other destructive behaviors because they're trying to deal with your feelings. I've used this example before. Let's say a husband and wife go to a party and while they're at the party, the man gets jealous of the way uh, his wife is talking to some friend or something and he gets jealous. But because of his macho and he wants to be strong and he doesn't want to look weak, he can't, he feels he can't express that to her, that honey, I felt jealous when I saw you talking to that guy or it didn't feel good for me or whatever, however he wanted to express it to her. That's too vulnerable. That's too weak. That's not being a man. But however, if he's holding on to that hurt from her, don't you think somehow he's going to take that out on her? And that's usually what we see. So maybe in some other way, he might not even be aware of it, but maybe he is aware of it. Later on, he's going to take it out on her somehow. Maybe it's even by being physical or assaulting her or insulting her about something else, or getting mad at her about something, and now they start having a fight that actually really isn't about the thing he's bringing up, but it's actually because he's hurt about something else. And now they have this fight, which really won't be resolved, because again, the issue isn't whatever he's bringing up. That's actually the problem, and a lot of times you see this when couples are fighting. One of the main reasons they can't get to a resolution is that they're not fighting about the thing they think they're fighting about. The cause of it is actually something else. So you can even resolve that issue but there's still that underlying issue that's not being touched at all. So in this case, the man is feeling jealous, feeling hurt, feeling insecure, whatever it might be, but instead he's having a fight with her about something else, about something she did at the house or something about her in an indirect way, and it can grow into a fight or discord or something that pulls them further apart. But if the man actually could just say, it might be hard, it takes some courage, you know, I didn't like 
how you were talking to that guy or it didn't feel good for me or I felt insecure in that moment or however he might express that vulnerability. If his partner is a sensitive and emotionally available person, she'll be able to have a conversation with him about it and hopefully they can become closer. Doesn't mean they might not even have a fight in that moment or argument or disagreement. That can happen. But in the end, they'll become closer if they both handle it with respect towards each other and sensitivity. So we have to allow for men to be more sensitive, more vulnerable, and more open to sharing their feelings for both man and woman, and of course, man and man, if it's a homosexual relationship, to become closer and to uh, create that connection that they are looking for. But going back to this idea of it being not masculine, I think Rahman brings up a good point, and I tried to touch on it, but I'm glad I'm talking about it more, that as women, they have to think about what they are saying when they say that. What do they want? Do they want a man who is stoic and doesn't have any feelings? Um, almost in some ways, what we're looking for is a caricature of a man or of a person. And of course, men do this about women too. We just want a man who's strong and nothing bothers them and nothing affects them and they're always there and you know they're always going to protect us and take care of us. Well, they can give you some of that, but of course the man is also a human being and is going to have weaknesses and sadnesses, going to get sick, is going to have bad days, all the things that a human is allowed to have and still be your partner, just like a woman also has the same thing. And we can't, sometimes men, of course, have unrealistic expectations of the woman and how they're going to be and to not get this way or not get that way. So it goes both ways, but we have to recognize that very often we're looking for caricatures of people, not actual human beings that have the full range of emotions and experiences, but someone who's just going to fit some pretty mold that we've created that somehow we think is right. And so I hear this a lot, and uh, Rahman mentioned it too, that, oh, I, you know, a girl might say, oh, I saw this guy cry, and now I can't see him as attractive anymore or be sexually attracted to him or see him as a partner, or does that mean he's just going to fall apart? How is he going to take care of me? Um, someone crying once doesn't mean they can't be an emotionally very strong person, a very sensitive person. If anything, it might actually show they'll be more sensitive to your feelings. If they can handle their own feelings, they'll be able to handle your feelings more. Uh, when we see someone say, stop crying, when someone starts to cry, it's not out of love for the person that they want them not to cry. It's that they can't handle it themselves. I see you crying like, oh, this feels really weird. I hate sadness. I can't handle my sadness. I can't handle your sadness because it's making me feel something. So I got to get you to stop. It's not a loving, caring gesture to try to get you to stop crying. It's because I can't tolerate it. So actually, if you're with a man who can uh, handle his own feelings as far as expressing them, he's much more likely to be sensitive to your feelings as well. So if you want uh, someone who's going to care about you emotionally, more than likely you want someone who's in touch with their own feelings. And we have to start changing this idea of, of masculinity. I think I see more posts and articles and things about masculinity versus toxic masculinity, which I think is good. And there's more, I think, a movement towards accepting men's vulnerability and a man crying as okay. And I think that's good. But we can't just blame the men about that. And we have to look at the women. I'm not about actually blame, but I'm looking at how we can create the change that we're looking for. And the only way it's going to happen is if we all start recognizing the fault and the ideas and the misconceptions we start to create and the ideals that we create for both men and women, that there definitely is problems there. Another aspect of feminism, we've, of course, we have the word feminine and we think it's only about women, but as we attain equal rights and we say that women can do anything or 
feel anything or be however they want to be. What that also creates with that equality is that men also can be or do anything. And we start to remove some of the stigma towards, for example, being uh, vulnerable or some of the ideals that we think a man has to be or the only way a man can be attractive. So by achieving equality, we move towards more freedom and flexibility that everyone should have. A woman shouldn't be constrained that she has to be a certain way because she's a woman and a man shouldn't have to be a certain way either. And we start to, when we start to remove some of those chains that we put on people that they must be a certain way or conform to a certain gender norm or gender role, we all win. We see that men get to be more human and women get to be more human. They don't have to just be a man or a woman or masculine and feminine. Men have feminine qualities. Women have masculine qualities. That's just how it is. We all have both. and We have to allow for people to express themselves more. But this notion of a man being attractive if he doesn't cry or a man losing his attractiveness because he cries has really big consequences and something we must consider. And as I said before, it wasn't always the case. It wasn't seen as a weakness for a man to cry. And I hope we can move towards that ideal again, or that idea, I should say, that it's okay for a man to cry, to express that he cares about something, to express that he's feeling hurt or feeling pain. That's perfectly natural. And of course, taking that a step further towards kids, the idea that boys don't cry is very hurtful. I still hear people saying those things. And it already starts to send this message that when you cry, somehow you're not a boy or you're not going to become a man and you have to stop doing that. And we should definitely stop giving our kids that message. So thank you, Rahman, for that kind of thought or that sparked that conversation. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. We'll be right back. In session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, studio number 3104410555. So, I was talking about uh, emotions today, just kind of end up being that way with vulnerability and sharing our feelings with one another and the ways that we sometimes have a hard time doing that. And also, I wanted to talk about parents and when it comes to their emotions in a little bit. But a caller f- for a few weeks now, she's called and said she wanted me to talk about um, how. Although, yes, we care about people's feelings that are close to us, we're not responsible for how they feel. And that's an important thing um, to talk about. In in the book I talked about Monday, Codependent No More, she talks a lot about that, that no one makes you feel something and you don't make someone feel something. I think, of course, you have to look at we can have an effect on how people feel and Um, we can be aware of how our actions and behaviors or lack of actions can affect how someone feels, but we have to be aware that we're not, we don't make someone feel something. And when we feel something, especially we have to look at that. I can't say someone made me feel what I feel. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. What I do, what I feel, what I think and how I act, that's all about me. I have to take that responsibility. And this is actually why one of the basics in communication techniques that we teach couples is I statements. So rather than saying you made me angry, you say I felt angry when this happened or 
I felt angry at this time. So you're owning your feelings. It sounds minor and people almost make it seem like, oh, you're like focusing on the rules. Who cares how I said it? But there is a big difference between you made me angry and I felt angry. Because I felt angry means I'm recognizing it's something that happened within me, something that I experienced. And because of that, it's not just based on what the person did. When we feel something, it's also related to our history, ways we felt in the past, things that this incident might be triggering, a whole bunch of things. And actually in the book, How Emotions Are Made, um, there's a lot of talk about how we're constantly predicting and simulating what's going on around us. As much as we think we're just taking things in, it's a constant prediction that we're doing and then matching the outside world to that prediction. Um, I'm still getting more familiar with the concept myself, but next week I'll talk about it in more detail. But it is a good point to remember that when I feel something, it's not some chain reaction that person X did this thing and now I feel this emotion and there's no other way around it. I have to feel the way I feel. And this is why when we talk about becoming more mindful, I think sometimes people get this mistaken idea that when we're more mindful, we're so consumed by our thought and our feeling, we're totally at one with ourselves, and we feel our feeling so deeply that it becomes even stronger or it becomes even more overpowering. But that actually isn't the case. When we're more mindful, we become in touch with our feelings. So I'm interacting with you and I feel angry, right? First of all, I say to myself, I feel angry, not I am angry. I am angry means that's all that I am that consumes me and it's going to dictate what I do next. I feel angry means that it's an emotion I'm experiencing at this time. Because it's an emotion, it comes and goes. It's not something that's going to last forever. And also it's something I'm feeling within me, which means I take responsibility for that or I have to understand it as an experience within me. So when you're actually mindful of yourself and present with yourself, although you're in touch with what you're feeling, you also actually can take this almost third person view, or you can see yourself almost like you're looking at yourself from above, looking down and saying, okay, right now I'm feeling angry. What is this about? What am I experiencing and why am I experiencing this? So we want to first look at the what um, of what we're feeling. So it's very important actually when we look at our emotions to try to understand what we're feeling. And just labeling the emotion itself can oftentimes make us feel better and make the emotion more manageable. So there is a benefit of actually putting a word or label to it. I'm interested to see how this book talks about it that I'm looking at, if it mentions things about that, because her explanation based on uh, the latest neuroscience research does put a lot of things on its head and how we understand emotions. But nonetheless, from what I've read about what it does is that it allows us to integrate our emotional feeling with our more logical sense or self. And because of that, that integration can make us feel better. So just labeling our emotion, becoming aware of it is very helpful. And actually one of the keys or goals of psychotherapy is not to fix things necessarily, but to create more self-awareness, to make us more in touch with our feelings. That in and of itself can be very healing. So first we want to understand the what, but then next, which is very important is we want to understand the why, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? And if we're very reactive, we tell ourselves I'm angry because she did that, or he did that. That's why I'm angry. And it's just 
their action caused my feeling. They are to blame for how I feel. So because of that, of course, I can get as angry as I want with them. I can hurt them back. I can do a whole bunch of things because I'm justified to feel this anger. I feel this anger because of what you did. But what we want to actually do is recognize what is my role in my feeling? Not in a feeling or sense of blame, but in an understanding type of a way. Why am I feeling this? So for example, you're having a talk with a coworker and all of a sudden you feel angry and you think, well, it must be because of what he said or she said that I feel this way. But if you take a closer look at it, there's a lot of things that could be going on. For example, you maybe had a bad day or you didn't have a good night's sleep. When we don't have a good night's sleep, we're much more irritable. We don't feel as good. Um, we already just have a bad state of mind. So we feel things worse or we already feel bad. So maybe it's because I didn't sleep well. And if I slept better, actually, I would be feeling a lot better than I am. I wouldn't be as angry as I am. Or maybe what they're saying is triggering something from my history. Um, what that coworker just said was similar to how my parents used to make me feel. They would always make me feel like they undermined what I was saying, or they didn't care about what I had to say. And they made me feel stupid because of that. And some of what I'm feeling is actually about that. I'm so, I'm feeling so much anger right now, not because what the person said actually was that hurtful, but because he triggered or she triggered this old wound for me, or this old way of thinking or feeling, or this way of feeling that I told myself, I'm never going to let someone make me feel that anymore because my parents made me feel that when I was too little to fight back. And now that I'm older, I'm actually not going to let anyone feel that way. So we react even more strongly. And of course, a bunch of other things we can look at, even if you're more hungry, that can make you more emotional. Now, they did an interesting study looking at judges who were going to decide if uh, prisoners were going to get parole. And they found that st in a statistically significant way, the closer it was to the lunch break, the more likely they were to actually not give parole. So they were actually going to, they responded more negatively, which just seems really unfair and such bad luck. So if you're um, your appointment time or your time in front of the judges was around, let's say, noon, right before their lunch break, you're more likely to get a, a negative response than a positive one. And then when they'd come back after lunch, all of a sudden they would uh, be more open to saying, granting them parole. And as this book talks about how emotions are made, we just have a state of being or feeling that comes within us and we try to interpret it. So we can imagine uh, the person comes before them and they're reading over their case and talking to them, whatever they do. And when they go to that quote unquote gut feeling because they're hungry and they're not feeling very good, they have a kind of negative feeling come up for themselves. And they go, oh, you know, I don't feel like it's right to give this person parole. It doesn't seem right or safe. And they think it's based on their logical decision-making, of course, I'm a judge. I think about these things all the time. I'm rational, not emotional. And they say, no, we're going to deny parole to this individual. Then they go to lunch and they have a nice meal and they come back feeling good and feeling satisfied and not feeling hungry anymore. And they look at the next case. And even if it was exactly the same, they no longer have that painful or discomfort in their stomach. So they don't have that negative gut feeling that they thought they were experiencing before lunch. It's quite fascinating. But it's something for us to keep in mind that when we're feeling something, um, our feeling is real, 
and that we're experiencing it. That's how we feel. But it's also an experience, meaning that it's not that real either, if that makes sense. So I'm feeling something, but it's not just that I'm feeling because that's based on some kind of objective truth. It's my experience at the moment, and I can be aware of that and look at that. And this is why it's very important, um, as Stephen Covey talks about in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and many others as well, that it's important to respond to the stimulus in our life or the stimuli in our life rather than to react. When I react, something happens, I feel something, I act just on that feeling. I say, I'm angry, so I'm going to snap back at you or do something or become violent or aggressive or whatever I'm going to do because you made me angry. When we create that slight pause and we reflect, and instead of reacting, we reflect and then respond, we become much more aware and we act in a way that actually is more meaningful to ourselves and is more aligned with who we are because we really look at what's going on in a bigger picture type of a way. So although when we're in a relationship, I was mentioning, and I think that's why the caller actually came up with this question, that you have to always care about your partner's feelings. And by that, I meant that even though maybe you didn't do anything wrong, or we don't know if you did something right or wrong, but if your partner says they're upset with you, you have to take that part seriously, their feeling, that they're not feeling good. You don't have to even agree with them. You don't have to agree that you would feel the same way in the same situation or that you did something wrong that's making them feel that, but at least you have to care enough to hear what they feel and hear them out and try to talk to them about it. That you always owe your partner. But at the same time, and I think that's why the caller brought it up, we're not fully responsible for how our partner feels either. Now, you don't want to start a conversation that way when they say they're upset because that makes it feel very invalidating and not showing empathy for how they are feeling. But as both partners, we want to be aware of this. I'm not responsible fully if you're upset. And this actually relates to codependent no more because People who are codependent tend to feel very responsible for other people's feelings. Or I'd feel so guilty if I did something that made them sad or upset, so I can't do it. Or they maybe wouldn't like this, so I have to not do this thing that I'd like to do for myself because they won't like it. And that's not how it works. Yes, we're sensitive and we care about other people's feelings, but I'm in no way responsible for creating your feelings. I'm also in no way responsible for fixing your feelings, that is your experience. And yes, I can be with you and support you, but I'm not responsible for how you feel. So I'm glad that caller brought up this important question or this idea that we have to keep in mind when we're in relationships, that I am responsible for how I feel and I'm responsible to try to understand why I might be feeling it. Yes, of course, it's possible what the person did is hurting us. So I'm not saying we're not affected by other people. Someone comes and hate, you know, hurls an insult at you and you don't feel very good. That makes sense and it's a pretty natural reaction. Now, you have a choice of how you want to respond based on that feeling. But yes, we do affect one another. We do have that effect on one another. But we, at the end of the day, are responsible for how we feel. And we have to try to understand the what, what am I feeling, and the why. And then also, very importantly, regardless of how we feel and regardless of what the person did, we are 100% responsible for how we act and how we respond to that situation. And that's the part that's very important for us to remember. Even when someone hurts us, it doesn't give us license to do anything back to them just because we are hurt. We have to choose how we want to respond, and how we respond is 100% up to us. So thank you to that caller for that 
question. I don't have her name to thank her, but thank you for that call. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dagwaki. We'll be right back. Before the break or in the last segment, I mentioned I would talk about parenting and how, as a parent, we can be there emotionally for our children, one of the biggest tasks that we have. Uh, As a parent, we often think, of course, we have to protect our kids, we have to make sure they're okay, and educate our kids, all these things we think are important, but sometimes we minimize the importance of emotionally educating them or cultivating their emotional intelligence. Very often I work with young parents and they think, or parents of young children, and they think they need to focus on their education or they're so obsessed with those things that they neglect the idea that the emotional experience they create for their child is probably the most important thing they do and they can do as a parent. Now also what this means is, what is, or I should say, what does that mean? Because something I also like to tell parents is your job is not to make your kids happy which I say that because it has some level of shock value because people tend to think all I want to do is make my kids happy. My job as a parent is to make my kids happy. And what that leads to is if they're smiling, good. If they're crying, I'm being a bad parent. I'm doing something wrong. And this unfortunately has some negative consequences. Uh, It might seem odd to say that wanting your child to be happy is a bad thing, but Overall, the desire for your child to be happy is not a bad thing, but the feeling that I have to make my kid happy and also make him or her happy all the time, that is a big, big problem. Your child is going to feel all the emotions they're going to feel, especially at a young age. They feel them intensely and they don't know how to handle them. And your job as a parent isn't to take away the negative ones and to amplify and only create positive ones but it's to be there as a support, as someone who's validating and empathic through whatever your child may be feeling. So your job isn't to make them happy and to only experience that happiness with them or create that happiness for them, but to be there for them, whatever they might be feeling, because they're going to feel all those things. And the message we send them is very important about emotions from a very young age. Uh, I work with so many adults and they cry and they apologize for crying or um, they talk about talking to people about how they feel and when it's negative, they say, oh, who would want to hear me cry or why would I want to be a burden on other people? And yes, when we care about someone and we see them cry, it will affect us because we care about them. So uh, yeah, they might not love the feeling of seeing you cry, but it doesn't mean they don't want to see you cry or that it's a burden. But unfortunately, most of us have gotten this message from a very young age that crying and becoming sad is something bad. Uh, I've worked with so many people that experienced as a child, when they would cry, their parents wouldn't like it and they felt it. 
their mom couldn't handle it or their dad would get upset um, or they just felt bad about what they were doing to their parents because they could tell they didn't like it. And sometimes it's very explicitly stated, boys don't cry or don't cry anymore or if you keep crying, I'm going to go crazy or I don't like to see you cry. And sometimes it's much more implicit the way they react, the facial expressions, the the experience they have, or when they're happy, they keep saying, oh, there's my happy little girl, or there's my happy little boy, always happy. I hear that from a lot of parents and actually concerns me when they say, oh, my kid is always happy, always happy, never sad, always happy. They think it's something good. I worry about that. Is it good to be, can they be positive? And some people have a different disposition. Yes. But to say always happy, never cries. I actually get worried when I hear that because that's telling me either the child is hiding their feelings, doesn't feel okay expressing their feelings, something is going on. Or their parent doesn't want to see their sad feelings or is not seeing it. Something's up. But no one is always happy. It's very natural and we need to sometimes feel sad, angry, other things as well. So don't give your child this message actually um, saying it around people. Oh, I love my daughter. She's always happy. Always my happy, happy baby, my happy girl. We don't want to praise them too much for being happy because that tells them that happy means you're good. When you're sad or angry, you're bad. And even when they take that to a further level, my sadness or anger makes me unlovable, makes me not okay, makes me um, a burden to other people. And I'm only lovable when I am happy. And of course, this can relate to what I talked about in the first segment about vulnerability, where many people as adults will think, well, if I show someone my sadness and my anger or those types of ugly feelings, of course they're not going to love me anymore. That's my unlovable piece. So where do we think we learned that very often in childhood? We got this message directly and indirectly that this part of us is going to be unlovable. So now we become adults and we think, I have these feelings that make me bad. I'm not going to share them with you because you won't love me if I do. Of course, when we eventually do share them, if we take that risk and show that courage, we find that we get loved even more when people see all of us. So when we send our kids this message that happy is good and sad is bad, the unfortunate part is that, of course, sadness is natural. So they're going to feel it at some point and they're going to think about themselves or think of themselves that they're not good for having that feeling. So as a parent, you have to remove this pressure from yourself that I have to make my kids happy and they have to always be feeling good and they have to never be sad along with many other consequences that I'll touch on, it also makes us much more likely to not have them face reality in a few ways. For example, um, they're playing on a soccer team and we don't want them to know they lost, so we don't keep score or there is no winner or loser. We don't want them to have to face that reality. of Why? Because they're going to get sad when they lose. I'm okay with kids becoming a little bit sad when they lose the game they want to win and they're trying their best. We don't teach them that winning is everything or you do anything to win and it's the only thing that matters and if you're lovable if you win and you're not lovable if you lose but we show them that there's competition and we try to do our best and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose and that's okay also it gives them that lesson of a failure that sometimes you're not going to make it you're not going to always win everything you might not get the job sometimes you might not uh, get accepted to the school you might get a breakup, you might get dumped, whatever it is, these, this is part of life. So in a small dose, giving them that, even if it doesn't feel good, is okay. I actually remember when I played in a basketball league, um, 
And I remember I loved playing and I loved winning and, you know, it was so exciting. And the first team I was ever on, I think I was eight years old and we won our first four games. So the first four weeks, there were usually one game a week. We were winning and it felt good. And I remember the fifth game we lost and I was devastated. Actually, um, you know, it's almost embarrassing, but during the game, the game was ending and it was obvious we were going to lose. And I started crying and my dad came to me and was comforting me and, you know, trying to make me feel okay. And he didn't tell me not to cry. Actually, when I think about it, he didn't say you shouldn't cry or why are you crying or, uh, you know, it's just a game or anything like that to minimize what I was feeling or undermine what I was feeling. But he was just with me and he saw how sad I was. And I think actually, because I felt almost embarrassed myself, I had asthma as a kid. And I would say it's because of my asthma. I was breathing hard and was crying. Uh, but really, I was sad about losing. And I think uh, people around me, and of course, my dad being a smart guy, he realized it's interesting that I only get asthma attacks when my team loses. He, he I think, realized it wasn't about the asthma, but that I had a hard time handling the pain of the loss because I wanted to win so bad. But that was okay. I'm actually okay that I, I went through that and experienced that. And I don't think um, it's a problem if your child gets sad if they lose a game. And actually, as I was just saying, what my father did, don't minimize what they're saying. Who cares? You know, we think we have to minimize it. Who cares? It's just a game. That doesn't feel good to the kid. Your kid is crying and sad about the game. And now you're saying, not only um, do I not really talk about your feelings, but I'm saying what you're crying about is kind of stupid. So it's invalidating and totally not showing empathy. So don't tell them not to cry. Don't tell them there's no need to cry. Don't tell them it's stupid to cry over a game or whatever else it might be to say, I understand you're sad. You lost a game. You really wanted to win, you know, and maybe at some point you can talk about, we don't always win the games. We try our best and sometimes we don't win, but that's okay. We can always try again, encouraging them to recognize they're going to have setbacks. They're going to sometimes lose or fail, but what's important is not if they fall, but it's how they get back up and showing that resilience. So we don't have to avoid sadness. It's not something scary. And that's why I think it's important to mention that. So parents realize there isn't this pressure that you have to keep your kids constantly happy. And if they're unhappy, you're doing something bad. So what we do is because we're afraid of making them sad, we can sometimes coddle them or not have them face consequences. Okay. You want this? We have to get it for you because if we don't get it, she'll get sad or he'll get upset. You want to do this? We'll do it right now. And we start giving them too much, not in a of course, I'm all about giving your children love and what they need, but we can almost give them things they don't even need or want that much just out of fear of them becoming upset because we think, again, my job as a parent is make my kid happy. You want this? Okay, I'll give it to you. You want to stay up really late and not stop playing your video game? Okay, yeah, stay up as late as you want. And then the next day they're tired at school and maybe we'll even write a note to the teacher saying they're feeling sick so they didn't finish their homework or whatever it might be. But in a way, we start to enable them to face to not face any of the consequences of what's going on because we don't want to make them sad or upset even for a moment. A good parent has to be willing to tolerate their child's negative emotions. Now, by tolerate, I don't mean you don't care and you're not going to be empathic. But what I mean is that you have to allow that sometimes they're going to be upset by the things you do, by boundaries you set, um, by the rules that are in the house or by consequences that might happen in the house. You don't hurt them, but they sometimes won't like it. Yeah, if a kid is watching their favorite show and you say, well, you know, now... We agreed that bedtime is a certain time and now it's that time. They're not going to want to stop watching. Doesn't mean you let them keep watching or you have to take them to school in the morning and they don't want to stop watching a cartoon. What are you going to do? Just sit there and watch the whole cartoon and take them late every day. It's okay for them to face that consequence of not 
being happy in that moment. So you can empathize with them and say, I know you like watching your show. I know you love this this show and you want to watch the whole thing and it's so hard to stop watching. But right now we need to go to school because school starts at this time. And like we had talked about, we have to leave by this time to get there on time. You might also learn that, you know what, maybe watching cartoons in the morning isn't the best idea because it's too hard for him or her to stop watching, which makes sense. So we'll try to come up with a boundary of not having TV in the morning because it's too hard to stop and we'll try to do something else. So again, I'm not saying don't care about how your child feels. Don't try to learn from it and change things to make them better, but recognize that a negative emotion is not a bad thing or even that idea negative emotion is not a good way of calling it. They might be unpleasant, but doesn't mean they're bad or not okay. So your job as a parent isn't to take away certain feelings. It's to just be there with whatever feeling your child might be having whether it's happy, sad, and whatever it might be. And those big lessons actually can happen very often with the negative emotions. When they get really sad about what someone said at school, this is when you can actually have a really deep and meaningful conversation with them. Of course, it's great to enjoy lots of pleasant times, and you need to have that. That's very important. So I'm not saying those moments aren't important. But more of the meaningful moments or the most meaningful moments are going to happen when your child actually isn't feeling good. Some kids tease them at school. What do most parents say? Oh, it doesn't matter. Ignore them. Who cares what they say? Find new friends. You know, we say a lot of things like that, like it's just so easy. Yet if we went to a dinner party and uh, someone said something to us, maybe for five years, we won't even invite them to our house anymore. But now with our kids, all of a sudden we expect them not to care that someone said something. So when they say they're hurt, say, oh, what did they say? Let's talk about it and show them that you care, that it makes sense that they're sad about what someone said. They care about their friends and what they think about them, just like you even as an adult now still care. But of course they care. They feel left out. And it's very easy for us to minimize what they're doing. So they say, oh, they, they let, didn't let me play today. And we say, who cares? Go play something else. Well, that's not really fair. I mean, we all care about things that are going on around us. And if people make us left out, it doesn't feel good. Even when we do brain scans, we see that the feeling of rejection actually takes place in the same parts of the brain that we tend to associate with physical pain. So there's almost like a physical pain of being left out or rejected. So that's what your child felt. They felt a pain. And we're not going to minimize it, undermine it. And again, if we want to live in the world that my child has to always be happy, we just want them to ignore the situation. We'll go away from it. I think actually the better solution is to say, let's talk about how you feel and how do you want to handle it now? Maybe you want to go talk to those kids and see how it goes. There's no guarantee your kid talks to those kids and it goes well. Maybe they feel even worse. They get humiliated. It's possible. But you teach them that it's okay to feel how they feel and it's also okay for them to face what they are facing. They don't have to be afraid of it. Uh, too often, I think the problem isn't that we aren't there for our kids' feelings, that we don't want them to feel anything. So I work with lots of families where I think they they think their job is to make their kids not feel anything bad. Oh, they got in a fight with their friend. I'm going to go talk to the friend's mom and we're going to resolve it, which I think is kind of funny. The fault was between them two. I don't know what the parents have to do, but they say, oh, by the way, you and Josh are friends now again. It's like, okay, I guess we're friends. We're going over their house. The kids need to talk about it. They need to see what they did wrong, what they could learn from it and move on from it. So don't be afraid to let your kids feel a little bit. Let them be upset sometimes. Let them be sad sometimes. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. You are there for them. So I'm not saying you ignore those feelings, but your job as a parent is not just to make your kids constantly happy. It's to be there for them, provide for them, but more importantly, support them through whatever emotions they might be feeling, happy, sad, angry, whatever it might be. 
All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back to in session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi, studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's talk about sex. How about that? <laughs> I say that to kind of get people's ears listening because usually you hear that term and people wake up a little bit. But it is an important issue to talk about, uh, specifically in romantic relationships. When I do couples therapy, even in couples therapy, sometimes it can be hard to get to that point for some couples which is indicative of the fact that most couples in their own lives don't talk much about sex, and this is actually a big problem. Sometimes I'm working with a couple that's been married for a long time, and they say they've never actually discussed their sex life with each other. That's a big, big problem, a big issue. This idea that sex somehow is a natural thing or because it's everyone has a desire for it, it should work itself out, either you have chemistry or not, These are all myths that we somehow believe because we want to avoid those uncomfortable conversations. So anyone listening to this show knows I'm all about promoting uncomfortable conversations, whether it's on the air or within family relationships or romantic relationships, because I think they're necessary to create good relationships, that the more we keep taboo, the more we suffer and the more discomfort we have, and actually the more distant we become from one another. But the more we talk about things, the better it becomes, and that's what we need to do. And sex is definitely no exception to that. So if you're in a romantic relationship, ask yourself, when's the last time you and your partner talked about your sex life and how things are? If it's satisfying for you, if it's satisfying for your partner, if there's things you like about it, don't like, things you'd like to do or don't like to do, um, that's all very important to talk about. And so we need to look at that. So that's one of the big myths we have is that we don't need to talk about sex because it should work itself out. Another one is that it should be pleasurable or enjoyable for me as it is. And if it's not, something's wrong with me. So most people, when it comes to their sexual issues in the relationship, tend to look at them independently. So if I'm not feeling good, something's wrong with me. If it doesn't feel right, that's my issue and we can't talk about it or shouldn't talk about it so first and foremost we have to talk about it we have to be okay with it we have to accept it that like anything in the relationship it takes working on for it to become better so one thing to keep in mind is in a new relationship maybe you have a sexual experience with your partner that isn't very good or something about it feels not right sometimes people jump to this conclusion that means we're not right for each other this is going to be the rest of our life together this way it's not going to be fun it's not going to be exciting so something's really wrong which is not the case 
Um, having a bad sexual experience, especially early on, doesn't mean you can't have a good, healthy sex life together. It's very natural. Some things are you're still figuring out. You're understanding each other's bodies, other wants, needs. You're also maybe uncomfortable about it because it's something new. So that's okay. So to have a bad sexual experience with your partner is not a, a subject of emergency or something you should worry about. It's quite natural. And along with that is this idea that it should always be good or always feel right or that both partners have to finish every time or something is wrong. None of these things are true. There isn't, uh, nothing is perfect in life and the same is going to be true of the sex life. It's not always going to feel exactly the same or right or good and it's important for us to talk about it. So if you're in a relationship, I hope you will initiate this conversation with your partner and be ready that most people get very defensive when we bring this up. One, they get uncomfortable because it is one of those taboo topics that people don't like to talk about or they don't feel very good about. And also, two, if you bring it up, oftentimes your partner will think it's because you're unhappy or something's really wrong about it or you're complaining about it, which doesn't have to be the case. Just like we need to talk about our communication, we need to talk about how things are going in the house, if you're living together, we also have to talk about this as well. Not because something is glaringly wrong or something really bad is happening, but we need to have that conversation. So be willing to open up that conversation. And you can even start with, is there anything about our sex life you don't like? Um, one question that gets asked a lot is, how many times a week should you have sex? We, we get people ask that question. Is there a specific number? Now, I wouldn't say there's a specific number that's good or has to be right. But if you told me you have sex once a year, I'd be like, that's a problem. So there is something that there's a certain amount of frequency that you'd like. But what's even more important is that both partners are satisfied with the sexual relationship in all aspects, frequency, what happens during, um, and everything else. So you want to talk about that. It doesn't make you good or bad if you want it more or less than your partner, but it's something worth talking about. Sometimes partners don't even realize that the other person wants it more, but is afraid to ask or afraid to initiate, or doesn't feel good when they initiate. When they talk about it, they realize, okay, there's more of a de desire from both sides, but we're both being maybe a little bit shy about it or don't know how to initiate, so it's not happening as much. But now that we talk about it, things can change. An initiation of sex is itself one thing. Sometimes one partner says, I don't feel good if I always have to initiate. Or maybe as a woman, I don't feel good about that, which doesn't have to be the case, but they might feel that way. And so you can talk about this as well. How does it feel when I initiate or I don't? Do you feel desired by me or not? A lot of issues come up and they're worth looking at. So as you can see, I've just talked about just a few things related to the sexual relationship you have with your partner, but we see there's so many things that we can talk about with one another that are worth talking about. Because again, it's not going to get better unless you work on it together. And there is a lot of work that can be done to make it better. So be ready to have that type of conversation um, with one another. Don't be afraid that if you bring it up, somehow it's a bad thing. And if you've never talked about sex with your partner, think about that as a big problem. Say, look, we need to talk about this just to have it out in the open and to be uh, willing to talk about it. And sometimes we like to think of men and women as very different. Are there sometimes differences? Yes, there can be. 
So we want to be aware of that, that maybe what you experience in your partner, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, might be different than what your partner likes or experiences or wants. But also we have to leave our partner to space to be themselves. So we don't say, oh, because you're a woman, it has to be more emotional for you, for example, or because you're a man, it has to be this way or that way. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case, but we want to be sensitive to each other's sexual needs. And sex isn't just about the act of intercourse. There's a lot of other things that are happening before. For example, foreplay can be an issue where people see very differently how much they want or don't want or how it makes them feel. Then, of course, what's happening during sex itself, and there's different things that can be done there, but also what happens after sex. Sometimes someone really wants to feel close and cuddle and, and be there, and for another person it might not be very comfortable. So this is another thing that's worth talking about. Now, although the sexual relationship is itself one part of the relationship, in essence, independent of everything else, it doesn't mean it's not affected by other things. And we have to be aware of that too. Um, if people or if you're, you're, you and your partner are having a lot of arguments or are not feeling good about each other, that could affect the sex in a different ways. Sometimes there won't be that desire or passion. Again, it's a generalization to say women are more emotional, so they might not feel more in the mood, but it's possible that a man can feel that way too. So we have to be aware that our relationship is also going to affect our sexual life. And because of that, it actually can tell us something. So if you were becoming intimate a couple of times a week, and now it's become once a week or not at all, we, we want to look at that. Well, what's going on? And that's why we need to talk about it. Most people might avoid that conversation, but we want to bring it up. Look, you know, I'm feeling like we're not having sex the way we used to, or the amount we used to, or it feels different. What's going on? Let's have a conversation about that. And that is another way that actually any aspect of the relationship can tell us about other aspects. But here again, we can see that it's information that can help us better understand each other and better understand the relationship and help make it a stronger relationship. So don't be afraid to ask if you see something going wrong or not the way it used to be. And speaking of don't be afraid to ask, we have to be open with our partner in expressing what we like and don't like and what we desire. This can be very difficult for a lot of people. They, one, might feel very embarrassed about it, that they you know, can't talk about these types of things, but I would hope with your partner that it becomes okay to talk about these things. Another big issue is that for a lot of people, it's hard to ask for what they want in general. Um, when I was talking about codependent no more, that's something she talks about, that people who are codependent have a very hard time asking for what they want and need. It feels forbidden to them. It feels bad to them. Oftentimes coming from a place of low self-worth, they feel that they're not allowed to ask for anything or they shouldn't ask for anything or they don't deserve what they want. So asking in general is not easy for them. So as a partner, it's good to actually ask your partner what they want. But as an individual, we have to be willing to express that too, to let our partner know, you know, this would actually, I think this would feel good for me or I like this or I like that and not be afraid. And we're not offending our partner by saying we want this or we want that. Um, this is another myth that we have that if we're sexually right for each other and if we're right for each other in general, then we'll know how to please each other or, or be sexually satisfying to one another just because of that. And that's not the case. It's not that simple. It's kind of like if someone was cooking for you, you might say, well, you know, actually I like more salt or I like this or I like this type of meal or I like that. doesn't mean you're a bad cook or doesn't mean they naturally should just know what your craving is and what you desire. No, people differ and people also differ sexually as well. 
what might be pleasing to one person might not be to someone else. So just because you might have had partners in the past doesn't mean your current partner is going to want things exactly the same way. And so you want to have that communication. So just by asking your partner that you like this or don't like this, shouldn't be something that your partner takes personally or takes offense to. We should assume that by default, we're going to be doing things in a way that isn't optimal from our partner without the knowledge, without knowing. Just like if I'm going to cook you a week of meals and I have no idea what you like to eat, it's not going to be easy for me to know what to cook and how to prepare it for you. I'm going to want to hear from you what you like and don't like and go from there. So we have to feel comfortable telling our partner something, knowing that it's not an insult. It's not telling them they're not a good lover or something is bad about them in this way, but understanding that people have different preferences and desires and we need to talk about those things. Also, the way we feel during sex can be something. Maybe we feel our partner was not passionate or too passionate or wasn't there, wasn't present. This can be important to talk about too. Again, not to offend or blame our partner, but to try to understand each other better. I felt like you weren't present this time, or I felt like you were almost angry with me. Things can be expressed through sex also that we want to be aware of and we need to talk about. So there's so many different areas of the sexual relationship to talk about, but most important for me is to open up that dialogue. Once it becomes something that we can talk about, once we no longer make it a taboo, it becomes something that now we can continue to talk about. What I like to say about removing a taboo, sometimes I've used this in talking about bringing up the topic of suicide with someone, is that we're creating a bridge. So by having the conversation, by removing the taboo, we create a bridge, which doesn't have to constantly be used, but because now we have this bridge and this road that connects you and your partner together, either one of you can use it at any given time. So once you've made it out in the open that we can talk about our sexual relationship, that we can bring up concerns we have, wants we have, things we like, don't like, now anytime it comes up again, we can have that conversation again. But unfortunately, some couples, even married for many years, have never opened up that conversation and because of that have never taken away that taboo and not created this bridge between themselves and their partner. Neither one of them feels comfortable bringing up issues even if they have some issues or some concerns. And remember, if you're not happy with the sexual relationship, it doesn't mean you're the problem or you have a problem and it doesn't even mean your partner is a problem or that they're the cause of the problem. But like anything in the relationship, your sexual relationship is something you construct together, you build together. And like when you're building anything, you need to work together, you need to communicate together in order to make it the best that it can possibly be. So we must not be afraid to talk about sex, and that's why actually I wanted to talk about it on the program today and say the word sex so many times so that people realize it's not something scary or something that we need to avoid or be afraid to talk about. So if you're in a relationship and you haven't talked about it before, bring it up. And even if you have, start more conversations about it where you really express yourselves in a deeper way about what you feel, what you want, what you like and don't like, and recognize that it's perfectly okay to have these conversations, not just okay, but really needed to help keep the relationship strong and especially keep the sexual relationship strong and make it as good as it can be. All right, we've reached our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. wanted to end the show talking about, well, I've talked a lot about parents, but one member of the parent team, and that's fathers. Um, very often when we talk about psychology, we focus a lot on the mother, and even we can joke that people say if you go to therapy, they're going to tell you whatever problem you have somehow it's related to your mom or your mom didn't hug you enough or didn't do this enough or your mom was this way or that way. And we tend to minimize the role and the impact of fathers on uh, as parents. And I think that's harmful in two ways. One is that it minimizes what they do, but also in some ways it almost allows for fathers not to be as involved. When we say that the mom is so important and all important and we minimize the role of the father, well, then we allow for fathers not to be as involved. But I think we need to change that. And I think there's more research showing that this is true, that the, the role the father plays is very important and shouldn't be minimized. And even when we talk about maternity leave, we should think about paternity leave as well, as they have in some other countries, because that itself reflects how important we think it is for the father to be there. We really, when we have that in the United States where we have maternity leave and not enough of it, but... That's a whole other conversation. But we don't have paternity leave. Makes it seem like, well, the father isn't necessary. The father doesn't need to be there, and we don't need them to be there. But this is not true. In many cultures, and Persian culture is no exception to that, the idea seems to be historically that the man just provides financially, and the woman makes the home and is there for the kids, to raise the kids. And I hope we start to change that slowly but surely to realize Yes, the husband and wife can provide everything together and also provide the child care and taking care of the home uh, together as well. So fathers, your job is not just to provide financially for your kids. Um, if you think because of that you're a good father because that's all you did, then uh, I strongly disagree with you and your kids will probably feel the same way. No kid grows up feeling, oh, my dad gave me lots of money so I feel really good. If their father was not there physically, they're not going to feel very loved. As M. Scott Peck says in The Road Less Traveled, we show love by giving time and attention. And not time away from home to make money for the child, but actually time and attention with the child, him or herself. Spending time with them, interacting with them, showing an interest in what's going on in their life, um, being aware of what's happening, that's true love. That's an expression of love. So we, we have to do that. So I hope we can move more and more towards that. I think, of course, we are moving in that direction, but it's important for all of us to remember this idea that it's not just the mother that's a parent. Mother and father together are parents, and it's up to them to help raise the kids, and they need to both be involved. Now, I also wanted to bring this up today the importance of fathers because um, today's august 30th tomorrow august 31st is my father's birthday um, although i think his technical birthday on the birth on his passport september 5th but tomorrow is his birthday so i wanted to wish a very happy birthday to my father i don't know if he's listening right now he's always busy here meeting with people and doing things, but hopefully he is listening. But I wanted to say very happy birthday to him. People have already sent lots of messages um, to him um, through the radio station and even through me that I'll pass along to him. So thank you for that. And also um, thank you to everyone who listens and who listens to him and supports him uh, for being so kind 
to him and loving to him. I know he does appreciate that. And I, of course, know people appreciate what he does. But I can say how much I appreciate him, not just as Dr. Farhang Hulakwi, who people know him as, but as my dad and as the person who um, has been there for me since I was born. And he really, maybe it won't be a surprise to people to say he's been a unique dad in a lot of ways, but he definitely has been. Um, one thing actually I, I appreciate, or one of many things that I appreciate a lot is that I shared a story of when I was crying to him um, when I would be losing a basketball game as a kid and how it would bother me so much that I'd be crying. And I remember his responses were never to make me feel bad about crying or never did I get the message from him that boys don't cry or men don't cry. He was always very sensitive to my showing emotion. Um, if I would get scared of something in the middle of the night and I went to him, he would talk to me calmly and I can vividly remember talking with him in the middle of the night about some fear or worry maybe I had and him calmly sitting there not making me feel bad about how I feel, not making me feel like it was annoying that I was waking him up in the middle of the night, but 100% being there with me, making me feel okay being with me until I felt calm and ready to go back to sleep and going back to sleep. And never once would I hear something bad about um, how I woke him up or kept him up or anything uh, in that way at all. He made me feel totally okay to go to him and show him that I was sad or scared or not feeling okay about that. And I really value that because I think that's something that I carry with me when I interact with other people in letting them feel okay for how they feel and trying to carry that for myself too, that it's okay to feel whatever it is you're feeling. A message that I'm sure uh, any listener of this show has heard me say in so many different ways, that it's okay to feel what you're feeling. Let's look at what it is. And, and if you're someone who's in someone's life, be there for them. So my father really uh, showed me that from a young age in his um, expressions that it was okay for me to feel what I felt. I also remember seeing him uh, cry at the movies. If we went to a movie and he got emotional, he would cry. And I didn't see him in any way feel uncomfortable about showing that emotion or feeling that as a man he shouldn't cry or as a parent he shouldn't cry or that was not okay. And it felt totally okay. Uh, a lot of times I think parents think, well, if I cry, my kids are going to get really hurt or affected by it or they can't handle it. And no, they're going to be okay. They'll handle it just fine. And I remember feeling that with him. And again, it was an he showed me, he didn't have to even tell me that it was okay for a man to cry because he would show me himself that he was emotional and he was expressing his emotions and that that was something totally okay. So I think a lot of the ways I look at emotion, um, he helped shape that for me by showing me that in different ways. And I really appreciate him being there for me. I, I can, right now I'm actually picturing different times when I cried to him. I remember one time in fifth grade graduation, I didn't get this award I really wanted to get. And I still remember the feeling of crying onto his shirt and he was wearing like a dress shirt. So my tears spread really fast on his shirt. And I, I just, I can always remember that feeling of that. Um, and so, you know, him being there for me emotionally was something that I really value. And as I've gotten older, um, I've, of course, got to experience a different relationship with him that I'm very grateful for. Of course, doing something that in a lot of ways is following in his footsteps, I've had an incredible role model of how to um, be and act as someone in the field of psychology and, of course, doing this radio show. 
And I never felt a pressure from him at the same time to be like him, which I think is actually very interesting. A lot of times people will ask me about that. Do I feel a pressure to be like him or to fill his shoes or to become something or someone? And of course, there's some pressure of that that I can feel just from myself of, of living up to a high standard that I've set for myself. But from him, I've never felt that pressure to become like him or to be like him or to become anything other than myself, which I really do appreciate. Uh, he doesn't make me feel this strong pressure to be anything. And I think he allows me to be me. And he realizes that I am different from him. And I think that's clear. In many ways, we might be similar, but um, we're also different. And he doesn't make me feel that I can't have that space to be myself. So that's also something I appreciate that um, he doesn't put that pressure. While at the same time, I'm incredibly grateful to him for giving me this opportunity. I'm doing the radio show now for about three and a half years is something I really love about my life and I really enjoy and uh, makes me able to connect to so many people. I get to connect people through the air when people are calling and I get to talk to people all across the world and also through social media and different avenues because of the show, I get to connect with a lot of people and see things that I'm so grateful for. So thank you, Dad, for this opportunity that you've given me. I hope I've um, done well in doing the show from my position, my uh, point of view, but I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity, which is something um, that I'm very, very lucky to get to do and feel very happy to get to do. And thank you for continuing to allow me to learn from you and through you and seeing how you do things. I'm not sure if he's listening still. I wish I actually could see him right now. But I love you very much, Dad. Thank you for all that you've taught me. And also to the listeners, you know, thank you for sharing my dad uh, with with me. I, I feel very lucky. I know for a lot of people, he's kind of like a father to the Persian community. Um, people tell me that many times and they value what he has taught them. And I recognize that. And I'm so proud of him for what he has done. I actually remember at the launch event for Radio Hamra, we're now three and a half years in, but I remember feeling a little nervous and even maybe that he was nervous. It was a pretty big undertaking. He doesn't really get very nervous about much, but I could feel it in him that there was some, you know, unknowing of what's going to happen of this. Was it going to work out or not? And I remember just thinking, gosh, even if it doesn't make it, even if the radio station doesn't even take off, I'd be so proud of him for trying, for doing this, for saying, I'm going to start this radio station not because he wanted some kind of attention or adulation or for financial reason, but really he did have this desire to create a radio station that was going to have a positive effect on people's lives. And that's what I, I'm, he's created. And I think that's wonderful what he has done. So I'm incredibly proud of him. Um, and related to that, he has shown me that taking risks is okay. And he takes, takes lots of risks and he does things that amazed me all the time that he's going to do this or do that or plan this type of event. And he goes ahead and does it. It's pretty incredible. So I've gone to see um, him and observe him taking those types of risks. And hopefully it'll encourage me to do the same in my own way. But I'm really proud of him and proud of you, Dad, for everything you have done, um, especially when it comes to changing the stigma attached to mental illness and the taboo that we have 
in most cultures, but especially in the Iranian culture, about going to therapists, talking about mental illness, that it's okay to talk about it. It's not a bad thing. We all are experiencing different things. We shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed or keep things taboo. We have to talk about things. And I think that impact that you've had is incredible. And we see the change. Even I see it in my practice that people are coming into therapy and you can tell that they probably never would have gone to therapy had it not been for the effect that you've had on the culture. And I think that's incredible and amazing. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. And I hope to continue uh, in those footsteps by reducing the stigma some more um, and making people more okay talking about things. But of course, your big inspiration and everything that I do with my show, trying to um, do what you're doing with the Persian culture, but now in English. But uh, definitely I'm so proud of what you have done because I'm very passionate about this idea that we have to reduce the stigma attached to mental illness, make it more okay for people to talk about these things. And in your own way, you've done that so powerfully, um, not by saying that's exactly what you're doing every moment, but by having people talk about the issues on the air and talking about it yourself You've helped educate so many people and also make people realize that much of what they thought and believed about mental illness was not true. And that, I think, is is pretty incredible. And I know you've touched people's lives all across the world, which is also amazing. Um, I, on a weekly basis from my own social media, get people messaging me thanking my father for what he's done, which is pretty cool. Um, sometimes it's in Farsi and I can't read it and I have to go to Google Translate to try to understand what they're saying, but trying to thank my father for what he's done. So dad, so proud of you. I uh, love you so much. Happy birthday to you. Wish you many, many more years and can't wait to have many more years of memories with you. So I love you, dad. Happy birthday. And again, thank you to everyone who's um, shared uh, positive messages. I'm actually have my Facebook page open, and I think just in the last few minutes, people have been saying some things, wishing him a happy birthday. So thank you for that too. But again, love you, Dad. Happy birthday! Um, and I guess I'll see you when I open the studio door. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Again, I'll announce the book for this week: How Emotions Are Made by Lisa. Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And another reminder that I won't be on the air Monday night. It will be a repeat show because of the Labor Day weekend. So I'll be with you next Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. All right. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadilak. We thank you to Rahman here in the studio and everyone out there listening. Hope you have a wonderful day.